Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we take a look back at the history of endocarditis. It became clear that these growths were due to bacteria and an infection on the heart. Before the development of antibiotics, this disease was uniformly fatal. Plus, how one hospital approaches the challenges of sustainability. Over the years, we've determined that uh, the best thing to do is to embed these sustainability practices into just, this is what we do. It's not even labeled as sustainability much of the time, it's just what we do. And the importance of designating a healthcare proxy. A healthcare proxy is probably one of the most important people you can have in your life because it's someone who you love and trust to make decisions for you, not what they would do, but the, what you would want done. And they're all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we examine how keeping healthcare facilities green meets the greater mission of community health, plus why end-of-life planning can't wait. But first, we take a look back at how a life-threatening illness, endocarditis, has been conquered. Infective endocarditis was once a killer, but with many breakthroughs in medical science, it is now a curable but rarely preventable disease. Here with a historical look at this disease and how the treatments evolved for it are Dr. Harold Smullyan, Emeritus Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology, and Dr. Donald Blair, Professor of Medicine in Infectious Disease Division, both from Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. So you both have jointly published, recently published a historical retrospective of this disease in the August issue of the American Journal of Medical Sciences. Dr. Smolian, what prompted you to want to do this kind of look back or historical retrospective on infective endocarditis? Well, I retired from active practice a couple of years ago, and um, doing these historical retrospectives offers me the opportunity to keep busy and uh, go back into the diseases that interested me when I was active. And infective endocarditis was one of those diseases. Yes, it was. It was a disease that involved both infectious disease and cardiology, which resulted in our working together on this project. So, Dr. Blair, that's a perfect segue. Help us understand what, when we say infective endocarditis, what are we talking about? The uh, word endocarditis, card actually is heart, Endo means the inside of the heart, and it's the inner lining of the heart and all of its structures. Um, it's a very thin layer of tissue, and it gets, it's prone to getting infected with bacteria that circulate in the blood. We all have bacteremia, that is, uh, bacteria in our blood every day. And for some reason, they stick to various parts of this endocardium, and then occasionally cause infections and leads to this disease. How early do we have records, Dr. Smolian, of this existing, roughly? I mean, do, when, we, when we look back in history, as you went back historically, when were you finding that this was begun to be reported as a problem? We began uh, our account of the history of this disease in um, roughly 1800 to 1850 when autopsies were first beginning to be done. And the uh, autopsies showed these growths on the inside of the heart and the heart valves. And that was the first indication that there was such a thing, but it took a number of years before it became clear that these growths were due to bacteria and an infection on the heart. And were they pres the presumptive reason why the individual died? In other words, were these infections fatal? Yes, this is, before the development of antibiotics, this disease was uniformly fatal. So when we talk about that, when you say before antibiotics, I mean, was that a particular kind of tipping point in the history of this disease, the before versus the after? Very much so. The very first uh, systemic antibiotics um, were in the early 30s, late 20s, 1930s. early 30s. Mm -hmm, 19, and 
uh, that was the one of the sulfa drugs, or several of the sulfa drugs. And uh, bacteria quickly became resistant to that, but in the 40s, early 40s, 1940, uh, penicillin became available, and penicillin kills bacteria very uh, quickly, and it, they were all sensitive at that time. And that's when cures began to be seen with many infections, including endocarditis. So prior to that, obviously, if you got a serious infection like that, could your body naturally, your own immune system, fight it off? Or were they so powerful, these infections, that you really they really basically led to death? I'm always worried about this powerful infection thing, but basically I view it this way. If you have a bacterial infection uh, such as in the urinary tract or an abscess, that is uh, readily treatable and oftentimes is cured just with surgery or just with drainage or just with increased uh, water up intake and so forth. But for infection of the lining of the heart, uh, there were no spontaneous cures. To our knowledge, there were no spontaneous cures. It was universally fatal, as Dr. Smolian said. So somewhere in the article, I saw the name Sir William Ostler, and I got the feeling he was a crucial figure, not only in medicine at large, but particularly in the history of this disease entity. Tell me about him. Well, he described it so well that in many parts of the world, the disease is still called Osler's disease. Um, he, uh, he gained his fame by uh, giving a series of lectures uh, at the University of Oxford, and I think the year was 1885 uh, that he gave those lectures. And in those series of lectures, he, he organized the many, many reports that were in the literature and sort of collected them into a, um, a whole unit that defined the disease. And he continued to write about the disease for the rest of his career. So he, uh, he p sort of put the disease on the medical map where it had just been collected cases before that. And he, did he live into the time when antibiotics were then available? No, he didn't. So his, this was his existence and his, the story of the disease was basically pre-antibiotic treatments. It was. So what were the breakthroughs that made the biggest difference in addition to antibiotics? Were there other medical breakthroughs that made a difference in the treatment of this disease? Well, I'll uh, step in for cardiology on that score because the development of echocardiogra echocardiography enabled us to actually look at the, uh, the valves and the inside of the heart and to see these infections uh, almost directly. And that gave us the opportunity to, um, to make the diagnosis in addition to the clinical suspicions that it uh, led up to that point. So up until the, when was that, that the echocardiography was um, available? That was in the 1970s. So that between 1940 and 1970, what was the, the treatment of choice? Uh, what, uh, before we get to the treatment, the, the, diagnos the diagnosis was made by blood cultures. And um, blood cultures have been done for maybe maybe a hundred years, but not commonly, and they became more common the later into the 20th century uh, we got, um, and it became pretty well defined that you needed at least three uh, sequential blood cultures. Actually, it was the volume of the blood that you cultured that correlated best with the identification of the bacteria. So you could isolate the bacteria causing the infection, and then you could test its sensitivity to the available antibiotics, and then you could treat, um, and the appropriate length of treatment evolved, and it differs from bacteria to bacteria and sensitivity to sensitivity, but uh, that's all been pretty well defined. Uh, so that was perhaps the first technical thing that made a, a big difference with this disease, and certainly the echocardiogram uh, advanced the, the diagnosis. So you could confirm the fact that something actually was growing there. You not only could confirm it, you could define exactly where the problem was, which valve, how, how bad was the valve damaged, um, which uh, got you into the uh, issue of replacing valves and 
I'm going to ask you to hold that thought. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with cardiologist Dr. Harold Smullyan and infectious disease specialist Dr. Donald Blair. We're talking about infective endocarditis, its history, and where it stands today. So go on, Dr. Blair. You were saying... Basically that um, uh, with the antibiotics, we you know, make great advances, but with the uh, advent of echocardiogram that's when we were able to refine it and and do a better job of deciding uh, when valves needed to be replaced and so forth and this is really Dr. Smolian's uh, yeah. area. Yeah so Dr. Smolian it seems to me though that in order for them to even talk about valve replacement surgical interventions had to have improved quite significantly so tell us how surgery played a role. Well, that's very interesting because the actual first cures of endocarditis uh, were, uh, were surgical uh, due to the ligation of an abnormal connection at birth between the uh, two major arteries of the body. Later on, it became possible to cure the infection with antibiotics, but the infection left the valve so damaged that the patients had heart disease um, after the infection was cured. And it was only until uh, valve replacement surgery came along uh, that it was possible to not only cure the infection, but to replace the abnormal valve. So today, what is happening? It still exists because I think, as I said in the beginning, it can be cured, but it's not preventable, and it still is occurring. Am I correct? That's correct. So what is the standard of care or treatment these days? Well, I think the standard of care is still antibiotics and uh, and the removal of uh, infected material and replacement of uh, abnormal valves. Uh, the problem today is that the disease has changed in the last number of years. Not only have the organisms changed and the antibiotics changed, and Dr. Blair can talk about that better than I, uh, but the disease now occurs in older people and people with other diseases such as kidney disease and in those patients who have had implanted materials inside their heart like pacemakers and abnormal. Yeah, now what, what about those implanted devices leaves you more susceptible to something like infective endocarditis? When bacteria have a uh, inanimate surface to adhere to, they're almost impossible to cure with antibiotics. They form um, a, a malure on their own where they can hide and the antibiotics have great difficulty killing them. And that is, that's the basic problem with trying to treat infected um, items that we put into the, uh, into the heart. The other complication or con thing that has made this worse is bacteria become more resistant. And we've moved from the rather easy to treat streptococcus to the much more difficult to treat staphylococcus and the so-called gram-negative rods, the kind that we think of as causing urinary tract infections. And resistant bacteria are the big issue now. And that's true, excuse me for interrupting, but that's true not just with infective endocarditis, right. but that's true in all of your right. world of infectious right. disease. And from the ID perspective, we see bacteria in the blood all the time. We get consulted for bacteremia. And our biggest issue is trying to help decide is it due to endocarditis or not? So the first, you know, what can we do about it? You have to think about it. And then you can go working with cardiology. You can do the proper diagnostic maneuvers. So once you've diagnosed it these days, is it the same drill in terms of trying to treat with antibiotics? And, and if not, do you need to remove the infected apparatus, for example? Uh, my brief answer is yes, but I'll let Dr. Smoyan talk about the apparatus. Well, I guess it depends in some measure on why it was put in. Uh, in some instances, it's put in as a life-saving measure, and uh, it would be difficult to, to remove and leave out. It can be removed and replaced uh, once the infection is cured. So that would be the goal, to obviously figure out. And as you said, the, ch the challenge for infectious disease these days is staying ahead of the bugs, isn't mm, it? That's correct. That is correct. And isn't that one of the reasons why you would be less apt to try to do prophylactic antibiotic treatment? In other words, treat in advance? Well, that, <clears throat> but also more specifically because it doesn't work. And we went through decades 
of assuming it would work and then developing the right regimens and so forth only to find that it really doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been hard for a lot of medicine to accept that you can't prevent, but you really can't. And uh, that's part of this it's a challenge. disease. It's a challenge. Yeah. It's a challenge. So in looking at this little bit of time we have left, looking at this overview, what's the takeaway from looking at a history of a disease like this? Is there more research that needs to be done? I mean, how has medicine evolved? I think it's looking backward, it's remarkable on how far we've come. Um, but the future is that uh, with all the new risks, it's become a different disease. and We have to find ways of uh, treating it in, in new ways and uh, avoiding it if possible. It's a constant challenge. Thank you both so much for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Harold Smullyan. He's the Emeritus Professor of Medicine in in Cardiology, and Dr. Donald Blair, a Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Upstate Medical University. Next up, how keeping healthcare facilities green meets a greater mission of community health. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, with global warming on the forefront of all our political discussions these days, it's clear that all large institutions are being called upon to become greener or more environmentally friendly. Here with more on how Upstate Medical University is meeting this challenge is Thomas Pilas, Assistant Vice President for Facility and Planning Sustainability in Buildings and Facilities at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Mr. Pilas. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for letting me come. So sustainability is the watchword, especially for large institutions these days, and especially those involved in health care. Tell me about that. Well, there's a... a strong connection between uh, wellness and, uh, and, and a healthy environment that we, we live in. And uh, as a, a teaching hospital and as a medical school, among other health professions that we teach here, uh, we thought it was important to embed that philosophy into our world. Yeah, and it sounds like just what you're saying, it's really, it's almost like if the mission is health for the institution, you would want to make sure that the whole environment stays healthy. That's exactly. It's a it's kind of a holistic view of uh, both what we do here at Upstate and how we should conduct ourselves. Yeah. And clearly it's an important role in terms of its contribution to the health, not only of the immediate region, but in a sense, living a sustainable life helps the entire planet. So uh, That's correct. And, and part of our program is to not only do what is right for Upstate from a sustainability standpoint, but as the largest employer in the region, we also are trying to personalize what we do such that our employees and our students can take some of the things we do here home with them and uh, implement them in their personal lives. Tell me a little bit about that. So are you hoping in a way that not only to serve as a role model, but also some of the lessons learned in terms of how to be more sustainable will actually be taken home, as you said, and, and integrated. Correct. Uh, you know, the, 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 of course, the poster child is always recycling. Um, and so we do uh, a lot of education uh, as to what can be recycled, what can't be recycled, and um, that, that sort of thing. Um, we compost our food, food waste. You can do that at home. So a lot of the lessons learned here, what you're saying, even at work, so to speak, for individuals employed here, can be really integrated into their own lives. Correct. And that's how we try to reach out beyond just upstate. I want to get to that in a minute. So let's let's go back over the history a little bit, because I was reading in preparation for talking to you that it goes back as far as even 1997 here, where Dr. Eastwood instituted something to do with recycling. Can you help fill us in on all of the history? Absolutely. In 1997, uh, Dr. Eastwood implemented the first recycling program at Upstate, and that uh, 
uh, for lack of a better word, chugged along for a few years. Um, Dr. Eastwood as the president. He was the president at, the, at in 1997, and then again uh, here recently. He's the interim, yes. And, um, and so that chugged along until about 2008, where we really formalized our sustainability task force. And, uh, and f- from there on, we've really come a long way. And what we've tried to do um, uh, is, uh, is kind of threefold. Implement um, sustainability practices in what we purchase, um, in what we design and build, and, and also how to communicate it to our workforce here at Upstate and our students. So it's really a three-pronged approach. It, it really is. And so over, over the years, we've determined that uh, the best thing to do is to embed these sustainability practices into just this is what we do it's not even labeled as sustainability much of the time it's just what we do let's go through some of the things you do because i think it, it it's so far-ranging it, it goes from the operating room to the emergency room to the medical school classrooms give us a little bit of an overview of the kinds of efforts you're engaged in or, or bring it down to the nuts and bolts Sure. Uh, the uh, let's go to the operating room because that's probably the most fascinating. Um, as you can imagine, in any hospital setting, there are many, many instruments that are one use and and they're one thrown and away. Do- one and done. One and done. And uh, we've uh, been able to uh, determine certain instruments and uh, uh, procedures in which we can either reuse, recycle, or in some man- way. Um, not have that particular piece of equipment or, or instrument into the waste stream. Um, that's not only sustainable, but it's good business uh, because the hospital has been able to save uh, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars by reducing the waste from getting the waste stream. Wow. So is it, is it, do you actually repurpose these types of things or are they actually reused with we sterilization are, we, we are, procedures? They are, they are repurposed. Um, some are ground up and recycled. Some are actually uh, uh, sterilized and reused, um, and it runs the whole gamut. And it's really a, in partnership with our instrument um, and, and uh, suppliers uh, for for uh, whatever the particular piece of equipment is. I think anyone who's been in the hospital in recent years, um, again, uh, maybe even prior to recent years, has seen these kind of, you know, all kinds of equipment that's handed to you or procedures that are done are obviously in sterile plastic and then the plastic's taken off and it's used. And it's always appeared to be that all of those things do end up in the waste stream. But now you're saying that even at the bedside, there are changes. They they they, they, uh, they do, uh, or they have historically landed in the waste stream. Uh, today, we try to repurpose or reuse as much as possible. In fact, we're trying to do two things with the blue sterile wrap that en- encapsulates these uh, instruments and, wow. uh, and, and goods. Uh, one, one being that we are reducing how much we use um, and using a reusable uh, container for sterilized uh, um, goods. And secondly, we are currently investigating um, actually capturing the sterilized wrap um, compressing it or compacting it and um, recycling it, which currently lands in the waste stream right now. So that'll be another large volume um, reduction in our waste stream. How is that impacting on your vendors? I mean, this approach of sustainability, does that also kind of go downstream to the, the purveyors, the people who are creating, manufacturing or creating all of these products? In other words, your demand for that need for sustainability, does it then impact on the people creating these? I, I, I want to say it's not necessarily our demand. It's more of a partnership with uh, these suppliers. It's a uh, um, we have ideas, they have ideas, we get best practices from them, they get best practices from us, and uh, together we've been able to find a lot of opportunities that neither uh, individually could have envisioned a few years ago. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohn along with Thomas Pilas. He's Upstate's VP for Facilities, and we're talking about sustainability efforts. So you, I know Upstate in recent years has done a fair amount of building, and one would think in the process of building, there can be a lot of waste or a lot of um, trash created in a sense. Tell us about how you have taken this whole notion of sustainability into that uh, region, that arena. Uh, we have um, a, uh, 
a, a, a policy here that um, every large construction project, whether it be a renovation or a new building, um, must be uh, certified at the lead silver level. And further, we define what within the lead points um, we want to uh, tackle. For our listeners, help us understand the lead silver level. What does that mean? Well, lead stands for leadership in environmental and energy design. And silver is um, is one of the many steps that goes certified. So it's uh, a level. Certified silver, gold, and platinum. And so our goal is uh, is to focus on energy reduction um, and indoor air quality. However, with the new constructions, you are absolutely correct. It does create a lot of waste. So I'll use the cancer center as an example. Um, we actually recycled 80% of the waste that came out of that wow. building as part of the construction. Um, and that's, we, that's amazing. And we're uh, just completing a new academic building, and the uh, recycling levels are similar in that building as well. So in terms of all of that savings, but in addition, the effort is to make sure that the buildings are green in terms of the use of energy as well. Yes. Uh, energy conservation is uh, very important. Uh, not only We're not only mandated by the state, but it's important because, again, it's a good business. Uh, it costs us money to operate these buildings. So... There was talk years past about, in the efforts to try to save energy, buildings were made kind of airtight, or you know there was an effort to, to make them so well insulated that there were some other issues that arose as a result of it. Toxicities from you know, some kind of emissions of carpeting and that, that kind of stuff in terms of buildings. How have you addressed those kinds of issues? Well, there's a challenge here because um, we are uh, duty-bound to follow uh, codes and especially in a healthcare facility, there are uh, mandates within a hospital. Um, so the, the notion of, uh, of opening windows and having fresh air is actually in conflict with many of the um, health code requirements. So um, we try to uh, address that by uh, twofold. Uh, one is to specify materials that don't have those odors. So we use low VOC paint. We have specified... Uh, carpeting and flooring materials that have a, a very low uh, odor content, I'll call it, for this purpose. And, um, and we, um, uh, we try to start right from the beginning with the uh, inception of the project and then work towards uh, energy reduction, having a, uh, um, a robust ventilation system where we do get a lot of fresh air in. To the building as you know, well. obviously, all these efforts have really led you down the right path because I read recently that you won a sustainability award from the UHC. What is that? Tell us about that. UHC stands for University Hospital Consortium. It's something we are enormously proud of. Um, it's a national organization of uh, academic medical centers, and um, this is a national award that Upstate won in 2015 um, against um, I. I believe there's 120 or so uh, uh, member organizations from across the country. And um, I think it underscores our program uh, very well in that we don't have, uh, because we're landlocked and because of lots of other uh, limitations we have with where we are and what we do, we don't have a silver bullet. So we did a holistic approach to our sustainability program and looked at every nuance of our world, um, from the reuse of instruments in the OR to uh, save the rain outside the buildings um, in terms of, uh, you know, basically repurposing uh, uh, rainwater, both to for vegetation and also to just keep it out of the combined sewer system. Um, so uh, we've looked at everything we possibly can, you know, recycling and, um, and uh, virtually anything you can think of that would make our our world um, more sustainable. We have done it. We've we've got a lawn reduction program going on, and with so little space in an urban setting, uh, that's been uh, a challenge unto itself. But uh, we reduced our lawn uh, mowing uh, areas by about 25 percent within the university in the last uh, few years. So you really are not only have you achieved a great. Um You've made a great achievement here, but you're still kind of ongoing in terms of your efforts. In the little bit of time we have left, what's on the what's the what are some of the future goals? What's on the on the radar for you going forward? Well, we're going to um, do two different things. That uh, one is um, 
we're going to try recycling in the patient rooms, uh, especially in the in the children's hospital. There are a lot of plastic containers that are used for a formula and things like that. Um, we are doing a pilot program on that. And uh, secondly, we're investigating uh, putting a large solar array on the roof of our uh, one of our garages. So it'll uh, generate a little over one megawatt of electricity, wow. uh, which is uh, a little bit over two percent of our total usage. Um, we just need to make sure that that's a, a good business decision before we go forward. Very exciting. Very exciting plans. You've obviously, as I said, achieved a tremendous amount. Very interesting. And also, it's a good feeling to feel like in our region that you're kind of almost a, a leader in this whole effort. So thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Thomas Pilas, Assistant Vice President for Facility and Planning Sustainability in Buildings and Facilities at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. A simple way to be a better parent. Well, dear listeners, when my wife and I were raising our two sons, we had a discussion about whether to have a TV in our kitchen and dining room where we spent most of our time. I thought it would be great to be able to catch a peek at the game while we were doing the nonstop playing, cooking, feeding, cleaning up, diaper changing, playing, babysitting routine of parenting. Hear an adult voice once in a while. My wife, Pammy, who grew up in a family with TVs everywhere, was opposed. Makes for crummy time with the kids, she said. You're watching the tube instead of really being there with them. And... There's a great deal of research showing that the quality and quantity of parents' interactions with our kids is very important in the kids' development, both emotionally and intellectually. Pammy won. Our TV lives a lonely life in the basement family room and has for 20 years. <laughs> and it turns out Pammy was right. Researchers put parents and their one, two, or three-year-old kid in the playroom with or without a TV on. With the TV on, mom or dad spent about 20% less time talking and playing with Junior or Missy. And quality-wise, they were less attentive, active, and responsive, less there with their little person. And other research shows that having a TV in your kid's bedroom is bad for their physical health, too. Kids who watch more TV in their bedrooms are more likely to become obese, have more belly fat, higher triglycerides, and overall greater risk of developing heart disease and diabetes. And other research shows a TV in the grown-up bedroom is a sure way to get less sleep with all the bad stuff from that. Emotional distress, weight gain, shorter life even, etc., etc. So, Pammy, I have to admit, turning off the background TV to keep our little guys running around in the foreground was a wonderful idea. They turned out fantastic. Just one question. Does the fact that my parents probably spent more time being with me than yours did with you mean that I benefited from that and I'm smarter and more emotionally mature than you as a result? <laughs> Note to self, not smart enough to keep that question to myself. <laughs> well, I've probably said enough for this week, dear listeners. Let's see how much time Pammy spends looking at and talking to me when I get home. I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Coming up next, why end-of-life planning really can't wait. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, death is inevitable, but most people live in denial of this fact. So there remains a strong reluctance to prepare for this inevitability by letting your family and loved ones know your wishes around the end of life. Joining us with more on this and the importance of this kind of planning are Dr. Robert Olick, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Humanities and the Chair of the Ethics Committee at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Thomas Curran, Assistant Professor of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate Medical University and the Chair of the Ethics Consulting Service at Upstate and at Krauss Hospital in Syracuse. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So planning for the end of life obviously is something that people try to avoid. What are the kinds of stumbling blocks or, or, or issues have you seen in this whole process? Well, discussing your death is never a comfortable subject. Uh, people just assume not think about it frequently. Uh, however, it does point out the importance of if you don't have a plan for how you want the, your end of life uh, plan to work out, you will be left to the, the vagaries of, of other folks considering what they would like to, like to do in that situation. And it, it points out the importance of designating a healthcare proxy. And a healthcare proxy is probably one of the most important people you can have in your life because it's someone who you love and trust to make decisions for you, not what they would do, but the, what you would want done. And uh, it is not a complicated process. Uh, it's, you don't need a lawyer. You just need to designate someone. These forms are available online. The New York State forms available online. You need two witnesses, and you need to talk with this person about what you want to have done in the case that you lose decisional capacity and you have a, a serious medical situation. And and it does it mean that you're always at the necessary at the necessarily at the end of life, or can it mean that you just can't be? mentally competent at that time to make decisions about your health care. The health care proxy only comes into play when you have lost decisional capacity. And if you have decisional capacity, you call the shots. But as we all know, we, none of us plan on losing decisional capacity. That's something that is sprung upon you uh, invariably. So it's crucial, Dr. Olick, then to have this kind of planning. They tend to, to lump a lot of these uh, concepts into a term called advanced directives. What, is, what are the components of this? Obviously, designating the healthcare proxy is key to starting the whole process. Right. So, advanced directive is really sort of a generic term for several types of approaches one could take to planning ahead for healthcare decisions that would be made on your behalf and in accordance with your wishes, but at a time when you're not able to make those decisions for yourself. So, um, in New York, um, we have the healthcare proxy document, which, as Tom just said, um, is designed to allow you to designate uh, someone you trust uh, to make decisions for you when the time comes. Uh, there also is a living will, uh, which, by contrast, um, sets forth with more specificity what your wishes would be in the future. Give me some examples of what you find in a living will, though. I mean, do, do, they, do they help you along with what some of these decisions might be? For example, do you want to be um, on a feeding tube, or would you want to be sustained after you couldn't breathe by being put on a, some kind of a, a pump or a, a you know breathing pump? Right. A living will could say any or all of those things. So there are two types of things you could say. One would be the types of conditions, a quality of life that you would find unacceptable and not want to continue on life-sustaining interventions. Um, and that might be uh, emphasizing, for example, that uh, if you should uh, lose the capacity to interact meaningfully with your family, that um, you would not want to continue in that condition. Uh, another approach would be to designate specific interventions that you wouldn't want, whether that would be a respirator or a feeding tube. Um, one of the downsides of that approach is that it can sort of lock you in to an anticipated future because these are all approaches to anticipating something that will happen in the future which haven't happened yet. How um, do they lock you in? Um, because then you're reading a document and um, both your family and your doctor need to figure out whether those instructions fit the circumstances that you're currently in. Uh, so the point is that it, at the point at which, in real time, you make that decision, put pen to paper, those circumstances could change at the time you really need the document. Is that what you're saying? That, that's correct. And, and that's one of the reasons that many people recommend that you have a healthcare proxy, 
because the proxy is in a position essentially to stand in the shoes of you as the patient and interact with the doctor and make decisions on your behalf in accordance with your wishes, um, responding to the current circumstances that you're in. But that also implies to me that that proxy really has had long and um, in-depth conversations with you and knows you well enough to really be able to, in a sense, see the changing circumstances and react accordingly. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And we talk about choosing someone you trust, whether it's your spouse or an adult child or a friend or a religious advisor, and the law gives you broad discretion in terms of who you would choose. Um, but that's not always the same thing as having the conversation. Uh, so it, it is important to have that conversation with the person you're choosing to make decisions for you so they know what your wishes would be. So what is a durable power of attorney, and how does that play a role in this whole advanced directive picture? Well, sometimes a durable power of attorney can be used um, for health care decisions and financial decisions, but most of the time the durable power of attorney document is something that's more targeted towards financial decisions. So bottom line is we're talking about a living will. We're talking about having designated a health care proxy. Are those sufficient, though, in terms of, I mean, I, I have been in, at one point told that you need to have in place, first of all, these vary from state to state, but the things that you're determining right or discussing right now are specific to New York State at this point yes. with our current law. What more could you, you, what more could you use or what more would you need? For example, what is a DNR, a do not resuscitate, and where does that fit in as an order? Well, the, the, when you want to make your uh, document some of the, your wishes for end-of-life care, you can fill out a form uh, called a MOLST form here in New York State, which is basically a uh, directive that travels with you. It, it, you can um, reiterate who your health care proxy is in that. There's um, selections for uh, what conditions you'd like to be resuscitated under. DNRs do not resuscitate. That's part uh, of it. That's part of it. And, and so that, that's something that if your heart stops, do you want people, do you want to be coded? Do you want to have, uh, you know, medications given and chest compressions given and that sort of thing? There's also a section uh, for do not intubate, in it, which uh, explores the situations under which you'd like to be on a respirator or not. And it's, so it's a, it's a way of, of kind of pulling together what your thoughts are in, in addition to naming your healthcare proxy, who will be able to um, facilitate you having your wishes respected. But it's also put in the form of a doctor's order so it can be executed it's, it's without cl- question. It, it, yes, doctors will sign off on the, on the MOLS form as being a valid uh, representation of your wishes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with bioethicist Dr. Robert Olick and Dr. Thomas Curran. We're talking about the importance of advanced directives and end-of-life planning. So what I think people worry about quite often, even if they have the forethought or the courage to have these conversations and put these things in place, I think the whole concept of the legality of it, do you need, for example, to have these forms notarized? Do you need a lawyer to help you write these forms? Uh, you, You were clear about the healthcare proxy idea. That's pretty straightforward. But the living will, for a simple, for example, or the most form. And then can these be changed? And when can you change them? And if you were in the hospital, for example, and had these papers in place in your medical record or the most form went with you from perhaps, let's say, an um, assisted living facility to the hospital, and then you perhaps were still in, in clear enough mind to say, you know what, I've changed my mind. Can you and how do you make that kind of verbal change to these types of things? Well, just, I talked about that. Just, so the living will is a if this, then that type document. And so it's very specific. And that is limited in many instances. Whereas the healthcare proxy is more of an on-the-fly, take all circumstances into consideration and make a decision that you think the, the person would want to have made for them. And so it just speaks, and you don't need a lawyer for a, to designate a healthcare proxy, and you don't need a lawyer to fill out a most form. And I think there's this misperception that lawyers need to be involved in order to make these documents, and it serves as a barrier to getting them. And you do not need a lawyer for those. Living will, sometimes people involve lawyers just because it has a lot of, well, they do, but it's not necessary. Uh, so if you were to choose, I guess, or Dr. Olick, did you have some other comment about that? You're a lawyer. 
Well, I, I would add that the law with respect to the sort of formalities of making it a legally valid document is pretty uniform across the country. Um, the do you law, need no, uh, you, be notarized? You do not need a notary. Um, two signatures is usually typical, uh, as well as the signature, you know, two witnesses and the signature of the patient. Um, and um, uh, that makes the document valid. And if you, for example... Uh, another sort of uniform rule is if you live in one state, you're in the hospital in another, um, your document is to be respected wherever you are. So, And they can be changed. And they can be changed. Absolutely. So it's the one that's dated most currently that's the one that's most, that's in, that's in force, so to speak. But if you were to, be, you know, need to change something verbally at the last minute, let's say, could you do so? Right. So you'd have a few issues that might come up there. So first of all, that's correct, that the general rule would be that the most recent document would take precedence and would invalidate the earlier document. Um, that may not be the case if one document is a healthcare proxy and the other document is a living will and they're written at different times. Right, I, I meant then the same. Then you have to yeah. figure that out um, in consultation with the family, for example. Um, you can change the document at any time as long as you're competent to do so. Um, and also, as was mentioned earlier, uh, if you have capacity to make your own decisions, if you're competent, um, then your wishes count, and the health care proxy or the living will do not apply until you lo lose that ability. Now, there's some new law in New York State, a relatively new law, the last four or five years. <clears throat> Tell us about that, Dr. Kern. So the, the Family Health Care Decisions Act was passed back in 2010, and that makes um, provisions for alternative uh, surrogate decision makers to be brought in if the patient has lost decision, decisional capacity and has not previously appointed a health care proxy. Prior to that, it was a mess to trying to figure out who could make decisions, medical decisions, for, for these people who had not, did not have a health care proxy form. And so now there's a pecking order that's been developed where you go through with your um, various uh, relationships with you. So um, your spouse would have first... Um, uh, be first in line to make decisions for you, then an adult child, then a parent. By the way, I don't get that one because I want my mom and dad to make decisions for me, not my adult children, but that's another thing. Um, <laughs> you mean that, the order that was yes, determined. Yes, exactly. My kids, are you kidding me? Uh, sibling, <laughs> and then uh, lastly is an other friend or relative. And, and I've had a case where someone who had not appointed a health care proxy, their closest relation they could find to them was someone who was in a book club with them. Mm. But they knew them very, very well, mm. and this person was able to make medical decisions, a book club associate. Well, they were a good friend, They were obviously. a wonderful friend. Yes. So, uh, so this, is, this legislation has really um, helped people have their uh, wishes be respected, even without the appropriate documentation. So the bottom line here, I mean, you were, you've almost alluded to the fact that living will could almost get in your way. I guess, what would you say are the cr most crucial, just to kind of sum it all up, what are the key points you want to make? Also, I guess I want to make this point. This is good. This is something everyone should have, not just people who are in their last decade of life or the last year of life. If you're older than 18. Everyone, because right. people can have auto accidents. Any number of things could happen, and you really want to have something in place so that you can be cared for in the way you think you'd like to be. So what's the bottom line? Well, to exactly that point, there are several important reasons to do this. One is to ensure that your wishes are going to count and control decisions that are made for you uh, when you're unable to make decisions for yourself. A second is to um, give assurance and guidance uh, to family members and to physicians about what your wishes would be, and in doing so, to relieve some of the burdens on family members that uh, would occur if they didn't know what your wishes are because their obligation whether they're designated as proxy or whether they're acting as family members without that piece of paper, is going to be to try to make the decision that you would choose for yourself so if the able to do so. the most essential component is the healthcare proxy and the most, perhaps, and, in Well, this I would say the healthcare proxy and talking to your family and your doctor. So you don't need the legal, you don't need the living will? No, no, healthcare, um, healthcare proxy is absolutely the way to go in New York State. 
Very good. Thank you so much. Difficult conversations to have, but very, very crucial. My guests have been Dr. Robert Olick, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Humanities and the Chair of the Ethics Committee at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Thomas Curran. He's Assistant Professor of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate University and the Chair of the Ethics Consulting Service for Upstate and the Krauss Hospital in Syracuse. Once again, thanks so much. Thank you. Our pleasure. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Poet Elizabeth Brule Farrell believes in the healing power of words. She gives us a powerful glimpse into life with a disability in her short poem, The First Time Ordering a Wheelchair. We always took connecting flights, cheaper, and a challenge to run as fast as we could to get to the gate on time with exhilarated laughter. Though my appearance does not yet give me away, to order a wheelchair seems a betrayal to my belief that I could just imagine becoming well and it would happen. Is it giving up when I press the button saying, yes, I need a wheelchair? Or is it grace in accepting a new view of who I am, letting go of the old image and being glad that a thing with wheels can go faster than I can, allowing someone else to push me along, saying thank you with a smile and meaning it. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we take another look at prostate cancer treatment and when simply waiting may pay off. Plus, after illness or injury, how a strong rehabilitation team can make all the difference. And what does fracking have to do with your health? If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <music>